This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have back on my friend Earl Stroll. Earl Stroll is the owner and founder of Cutter Stabilizers. He's been a huge supporter of Eastman's Elevated, even being an extremely small company, and he's just got some great stabilizers. Uh, so I want to get him on today and talk over the benefits of stabilizers, the benefits of sidebars, uh, the length of them, how to set them up. And then we get talking about antelope and hunting mule deer and uh, even a little whitetails in there. But made for a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it too. I want to thank Sig Sauer for their support. Uh, Sig Sauer just makes incredible optics. I'm really impressed by these image stabilizing binos. I think these things are the, the biggest... A revolution in the hunting industry in the last 10 years so basically you quick click a switch and it's a perfectly steady image like you're glassing off a tripod uh, they've revamped this line so they have uh, 12 by 42 which i'm running in my chest rig and then i have a 16 by 42 and they also make a 20 by 42 that'll take the place of a spotting scope in most situations for me so um, they've put in their new high-end glass in it. They're just amazing. I spot more animals with these things, and uh, they're real game changers. So make sure to check those out. Uh, I, I believe they, they make the, la the best rangefinders on the market. Uh, the Kilo 5K is the one that I'm using. You can put your bow speed in it. Uh, my cuts are just perfect for shooting downhill and uphill. And I get the same reading off lighter, dark targets, a powerful laser to be able to shoot through grass. This is a huge advantage for bow hunters and then also rifle hunters, too, is just having the correct range. So amazing product there. You can check out everything they offer, including standard binos, spotting scopes, uh, rifle scopes. They're just doing great work there over at Six Hour and couldn't be more proud to be partnered with them here on the podcast. Also, make sure to check out Silencer Central. So Silencer Central, they make silencers for hunting rifles. So uh, they have the the Banished Backcountry, which is a lightweight silencer. And where a silencer will help is it takes away kick from the rifle, uh, won't blow out your eardrums, which is really nice. Uh, and also, um, yeah, it's like uh, reduces the sound, so maybe get a follow-up shot. So I think it's a huge benefit that us hunters can really utilize. So I'm working with these guys right now to get a silencer put on one of my rifles and uh, going to go check it out. Um, these guys will help you with the paperwork, help you get filed, help you get a silencer. Uh, so it's just a, a great company that offers a great service over there at Silencer Central. And then, of course, I want to thank Cutter. So this podcast is about Cutter today, Cutter Stabilizers. I really appreciate the support from Earl, and you'll hear all about them in this podcast. So thanks to Cutter for their support. I want to thank Black Ovis. Black Ovis is an internet retail shop that has absolutely everything you need for your next hunt. Uh, they carry all the top name brands as well as their own name brand. You can save 10% on your order by putting in the code ELEVATED10 at checkout. 
Also, make sure to check out Camo Fire, a great app that has a bunch of new hunting deals that come up every 24 hours. You can save a pile of money on overstock gear. So thanks to those companies. Thanks to Eastman's for their support. Uh, of course, make sure to check out the Mule Deer course. We have a kill kit right now we're giving away with Black Ovis Game Bags, best in the business. Really like these ones. Uh, Outdoor Edge Knife, another sponsor of the podcast. Uh, replaceable Blade Knife. And then you also get 10% off, so it's like 90 bucks for the for the Mule Deer course. So um, check that out. Put in the promo code BRIANMDC and save you a little bit on your order. And... Uh, also, make sure to check out the new Beyond the Grids. Uh, by now, my new High Country Hunt from last season will be out. Uh, really proud how that came out. A couple great big bulls from Dan Bacar and uh, 11 episodes this season. So those will be dropping every Saturday here for the next bit. So you can check those out. Uh, the magazine's Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, I've got way too many projects in the magazine. I say that kidding. You know, it's... Uh, uh, just tough during season when I've got deadlines on articles when I'm trying to be hunting, but uh, I really enjoy uh, this format. I really enjoy writing where I get to think of my word choice, paragraph, uh, really get to script it the way I want it to read to really help you guys out. Um, same as the podcast. I share everything I know about Western hunting in there, and uh, all the articles are pertinent to the time of year. So um, writing a bunch in there and a bunch more to come out here uh, shortly in EBJ and EHJ, six issues a year of each magazine, so 12 issues total, so you can check those out as well. And with that, just going to finish packing my bags, and I'm going to get out of here and get on a hunt. So, um yeah, getting these podcasts loaded up, which will be nice. I'm going to take a little break from the podcast, which won't be a break from them releasing to you guys, uh, but it'll be a break from me having to produce them and put them out. So trying to get ahead, I'll surely be ahead for this next hunt and may even do the hunt after that. So um, get a get a good reset, and I will be recording as I go, try to get some live podcasts this year and then good podcasts with the guys I'm hanging out with. So We'll continue to record. They'll continue to be a podcast every week. Uh, just going to get myself a little uh, break so I can go hunt for a while. So, All right, guys, let's get into it. Earl Stroll, Cutter Stabilizers. I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Cool. All right, I'm here with Earl Stroll this morning, buddy of mine, uh, owner and founder of Cutter Stabilizers. Welcome, Earl. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, for sure. It's always good to connect with you. So you've been busy this summer. I've seen you been at a bunch of those tack shoots, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been cranking. We did the Colorado tack, and then we did the uh, South Dakota tack. It was, uh, those things were crazy. There's a ton of people up there, and uh, it's really cool to be able to, to share some knowledge with, with people as far as stabilizers and how they can help them on the mountain and with all their hunts. Yeah, good for you. Um, that on the mountain practice is so key, isn't it? It's like it, it's like a, a real good reality check. They're really challenging courses, but it's nice to be on uneven footing, be shooting at 3D targets, uh, different ranges. It just gives guys a chance to check out all their gear. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's all fun and games in the flat parking lot shooting range, but when you get on the side of a mountain and you got to shoot at a small target, you know, through a tunnel of trees. It plays some tricks on you. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I was just out yesterday just checking my third axis, making sure everything was dialed there, extreme angles and such. And um, 
man, it's that um, your rangefinder makes a difference on your cuts. It's just like um, it shows any weakness in your game when you're shooting that or any flaws in your game. Man, you don't want to just sight in on level ground and then um, get out and go hunting. It gives you a false reality of like how far you can shoot, how accurate you can be. And I noticed that those 3D shoots uh, can kind of be a good reality check as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some... There's some that are a little bit excessive as far as shot distance and stuff like that, but, you know, it's definitely cool to, especially with those angles like that, we're pretty lucky. We have a pretty cool uh, 3D course here, uh, close, pretty close to Denver, and one of the shots is like a 27-yard downhill at like a 50-degree. It's a, a bighorn sheep. Um, I want to say it's like 42 yards line of sight, but it's just super-duper steep and you don't really have the opportunity to shoot that kind of shot very often. And it really shows you, you know, how important the third axis is, how important having a good level set up tuned bow is like, you know, you get to shooting and down, 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 down. Where's the target? Keep going, keep going, keep going. And you're pointing the stinking bow all the way straight down the mountain. That's pretty fun. Oh, it's super fun. Yeah. Well, and, um, yeah, I just know like that uh, there's a buck that I shot last year with the film coming out, but it's down a 50-degree slope. And, man, if I didn't have that third axis dialed, if I didn't have my cut dialed, there's just no way I could have made that shot. So, yeah, it's definitely like really good practice. And I, I love aiming at a 3D as well. I think it like trains the brain to aim at those animals instead of a dot. Like I love sighting in on a dot and making sure that my gear is dialed. But, um, yeah, there's nothing that replaces that 3D in the summertime for me. It just gets me ready for season. No, oh, yeah, I agree. It's two totally different games, aiming at a dot versus aiming at a target with no dot. Mm-hmm, for sure. So um, you were able to talk to a bunch of guys there. Um, it, it seems like, you know, I shoot with a bunch of different guys and um, we do like that Western Hunting Summit. Lampers puts up a really good 3D course. Uh, so we're able to walk through that a couple times and kind of get that same practice. He had it go on in the breaks this year and we had um, yeah some near vertical shots like that, which were really cool and then some challenging shots. But I'm surprised how many guys are not taking advantage of like this double stabilizer setup, like the the front bar and then the back bar and then the ability to just wait. It just seems like for so long those stabilizers were dang near useless. It's like to have a six-inch stabilizer, and not that a six-inch doesn't help, but it just seems like these longer stabilizers give you such stability in your shot. And then that sidebar, like getting another bar with different weights on a different point in that bow it really helps balance things out and and just helps immensely with the hold and the movement and the shot did you see the same thing attack or guys starting to catch on to the sidebar or uh still a lot of guys that aren't shooting them the same that i'm seeing so that was uh that was one of the interesting things is you know they'd come up to the booth and they'd they'd talk to us and you know i'd uh, i'd ask them just like do you know why it's beneficial to use a dual stabilizer setup. Like, I have no idea. My friends, my friends are doing it. So I'm I'm interested in it. So I had one of my bows with, you know, all my accessories on my quiver and I'd, um, pull those, the back bar off, put it in their hand. And I'd say, you know, notice what it takes to keep that bubble level in the middle. And, you know, you put it in their hand and they're squeezing the crap out of the bow 
And then I'd put the back bar on and I'd say, now relax your hand and let the bow do what it's supposed to do. And you just see all of that hand torque go away and that bubble level just settle right into the middle. You know, so there's not only the left and right benefit, but also the forward to backward benefit. We get our bow to, to be weighted how it should be. And that bow will level in both planes, front to back and side to side, which is, that's a huge benefit that not a lot of people think about is, you know, as archers, our tendency is to get stuck below the dot where we're aiming. And we always have to fight to push that pin upwards where we put a little bit more weight on the back bar, turn that bow into a pendulum. It'll force that bubble upwards. It's a lot easier to descend in height with that pin than it is to gain height with that pin. So pushing that pin up with our stabilizers is again going to get rid of a bunch of hand torque. Boy, that's um that's something I didn't think about earlier. Like I love the benefits of the stabilizers that hold the reaction of the bow. I love having it level. But yeah, I didn't think about the hand torque. Like uh it's so important the hand positioning on a bow and to get rid of that torque to be to shoot accurate arrows and consistent arrows, you know, and that's, um, you know, like definitely something that, you know, sitting in front of paper, I can see with my shot that I can get a, such a consistent bullet hole with no rips left or right. But I hadn't thought about how that affects the grip, man. You're so right. Like, uh, boy, just even just minimal torque on your bow really changes where that arrow hits. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to eliminate is, is variables as far as building a good, accurate uh, hunting bow. So especially when we get into shooting, you know, broadheads, fixed blade broadheads are always going to amplify all of your inconsistencies. And by eliminating that hand torque, we're trying to get rid of the, you know, at the end of the day, it's the human element that's the inaccurate part of shooting a bow, right? We throw that bow into a, you know, shooting machine, it'll send that arrow through the same hole every time. But when we put, you know, a living thing that's not super duper consistent all the time, that's where we get our misses. So trying to make that bow as forgiving as possible and get rid of as much of that lateral torque as, as we can, that's where we're going to see the benefits as far as more accuracy and more forgiveness. Dude, so true, right? Um, yeah, it's like sometimes um, you you hold on target and um, you know execute a good shot, and it can have nothing to do with where the pin was. It can have nothing to do with your release or your anchor. It could have everything to do just with a bit of torque. And you're right; like the only thing that's field point accurate is field points. It's like the minute you stick. Right even an expandable on there, it catches more air and steers that arrow. And a, uh, even the, the most aerodynamic expandable broadhead is not going to shoot as forgiving as a field point. It's going to have more movement. And then a fixed blade, even more yet, you know. And so, yeah, to, to make it as forgiving as you can, it need to have that, that consistent form and that consistent grip. Yeah, it's um such a great point. And these stabilizers nowadays, it's just like, you know, people are finally catching on, but your stabilizers, uh, you know, being carbon fiber are really lightweight, which means that when you stick the weights on the end, they have a, a bigger overall effect on the hold of the bow and the reaction of the bow. Uh, but, but also it's, it's just like those stabilizers, they, they help with everything. They slow down the movement of the aim. You can mess with the stabilizer weights to mess with the reaction of the arrow. It just makes for such a forgiving shot, you know. And so, 
um man i think it's um i think it's part of what guys are missing with their hunting setup you know we can take a page like you never see an indoor shooter or a 3d shooter or an outdoor shooter that isn't utilizing stabilizers and utilizing being able to change the weights by one ounce off the front of the back but for some reason you see these hunting stabilizers that some of them don't even have weights on them they're so short that they don't really affect the bow it's where it's like the one place where guys could really improve their shooting just by a piece of gear oh for sure yeah i mean going back to the the lightweight thing we so throughout the events with TAC we started to collect you know, older stabilizers that the customers didn't want anymore after they got ours on the bow. So they just leave them there. So we, we made this wind chime out of all these old stabilizers. <laughs> we hung it up on the tent. But um, I brought them back to the shop and I weighed them and I took the, you know, the length. And one, I think the most extreme example was a five inch stabilizer. We'll call it that. But it was a five inch long stabilizer that weighed half a pound. It had no external weights. It was basically like a big, heavy rubber rod. It's just like, that's literally doing nothing for you except making your bow heavier. So we were finding that, like, these dudes would get front bar, back bar setups, and they would their bow would be lighter overall with way more stabilization on it. You know, so, like, our longest bar in the hunting lineup is our 15-inch bar, and that's... 2.8 ounces with no external weight on it. So you get, you know, 5.8 ounces for a 15-inch bar with 3 ounces of weight on the end. Like, the benefits of that are going to be drastically better than some little short, heavy thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%, man. And I I know, you know, like I shoot that 15 out front and a 12-inch out back. And, um, you know, guys will ask about the weight or look at the bow and think, gosh, does that get in your way? And it's just like, man, it's every successful hunt comes down to making a shot. Like that is my moneymaker is my bow. And I want it to hold and shoot as good as I possibly can. And, I mean, yeah, I've, I've crawled around like I do – you know, I've already got, you know, a, a bunch of hunting days under my belt, 30, 40 days of crawling in the grass and in brush and in thick country. It just doesn't bother me a bit having those stabilizers on there. It's just like um, it, it's such a benefit to the way that bow holds and the way that bow shoots that I just couldn't shoot without it. I, I can't imagine guys that are that are shooting less. And I think, you know, you can definitely get away with less in the backcountry. And it, it does come down to a bit of personal preference, you know, what you want to pack. But I know, too, like my bow is perfectly balanced, uh, not only during the shot, but carrying it. Like I know carrying my bow, I mean, it sits in my hand and doesn't pull to the front or to the back or sideways. It's just perfectly balanced in the grip. So it actually like packs really well. And, you know, it's like uh, I probably have a bit more weight than most guys on my bow. I think I'm like... Uh, I think I was finally able to cut mine down a little bit and get the same hold, but I'm still, I'm, I'm think I'm five out front and nine out back. So that's five ounces out front, nine ounces out back, and with the stabilizers, roughly adding about a pound to the weight of my bow. But a pound to have it perfectly balanced carries so much better than it would without the pound and not perfectly balanced pulling on the front of my hand or something like that. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's I do a 15 on all my hunting setups as well, and we got asked about that a lot. You know, so I've, I'll always do a 15 on the front, and I'm generally three on the front and between seven and ten on the back, depending on the bow. You know, that's another thing to consider is all the different bows have different riser geometry. And, you know, you take into account what sight you have on the bow. Like the, the spot hog sight, those are super heavy. Especially if you're running the dovetail out really far, you're going to need more weight on the back to counteract that. So it's just there's a lot of things to consider as far as what weights you're going to need. There's not a, you know, specific recipe that is going to work for everyone. It's all a little bit different. But, uh, yeah, that 15-inch front bar has never been an issue for me. That's one of the stories that the only time that I got close to having an issue was when I was hunting in a box blind in Texas. And I actually ended up shooting a buck with my 15-inch front bar sticking out of the front window of the box blind. So, I mean, you're, you're going to find a way, right? The accuracy is paramount, and having a good shooting bow is definitely worth the very, very minimal maneuverability loss with having a longer bar. Oh, 100%. So this is a bit off subject and more like a personal question, uh, just because you know so much about archery and setups and bows and things. So dovetail in or dovetail far away, like uh, my decision seems to come down to the way it fits into my peep. Like I want it to fit in different lighting into my peep. I do know that like the closer it is, like the more range I can get. So the longer it is, it feels like the more distance between my peep and my sight, which maybe could make for like better, stronger alignment. Like what's, um, uh, what do you run your bow? What do you recommend for guys? Benefits, um, shortcomings? Like, what do you like for that, um, uh, for that sight on that dovetail? Do you like it far out or do you like it close? I always bring mine as close to the bow as possible. It's going to bring your pin gaps together. Yep. Um, and then you can always play with your, your peep alignment. There's lots of different sizes of peeps. You know, the thinking on bringing it farther out is you have a far longer sight radius. So it can be more accurate, but you're going to lose forgiveness because you're going to see more movement with that pin at full draw. So again, my my number one goal with any hunting bow is forgiveness. All right, we already have enough crap going against us out there that I want to have my bow work with me rather than against me. So keeping that sight as close to the bow as possible is not only going to gain me more distance, but it's also going to gain me a little bit of forgiveness. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, that's um, it's good to hear that my line of thinking was correct because I <laughs> yeah, see those yeah. dovetails at all different distances from those bows, and I'm not sure when it was that I made that change, but yeah, I run mine as close as possible. So yeah, well, that's good to hear. Um, well, you yeah. guys have everything for these bows now too. Is like um, uh, have a great weight setup. You have different size stabilizers, and yeah, if guys are just getting into a sidebar or front bar or want to step into it, they can definitely go with a bit shorter than the 15 but if you want to gain just maximum forgiveness and um uh uh in in the hold is what i love like the hold on the target it seems to slow everything down uh slow that movement down and also it makes the movement less it's like less erratic and really um uh that pin just floats around the spot you want to hit i noticed that that's one of the biggest benefits but you guys also offer the sidebar bracket and all of this stuff Earl, like, um, I love your company and I love chatting with you because 
it's like, man, you just created this and then you've evolved like these um, designs over years of, uh, of use in the field, use from other guys in the field. I know I was part of the testing in the very beginning of it. Uh, your connections to the bow, you've just made like the, the absolute best components you can. And that goes for the sidebar mount, that goes for the stabilizers, and also with the weight setup. Um, and, and you're a small company that's all self-grown, dude. It's just amazing to see. And uh, uh, I really believe you're building the absolute best stabilizers out there, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's, yeah, just like you said, you know, I think the reason that we've had the success that we've had is because we're actually out there doing it. You know, we're hunting, we're testing. Our back bar bracket is, I think it's the best mounting system for a bow hunter that there is. You know, you have the most common type of bracket is a compression style, which is a round peg and a round hole that clamps. You know, there's always going to be potential for, for movement there in the backcountry, which we don't want. You know, you, you get off of your side-by-side or you pull your bow off your pack and your stabilizer is pushed up against your bowstring now. And you're like, well, what the heck do I do now? How do I know where that was? So we went with a little different system. Um, so our bracket actually uses a splined system. So in the screw for adjustment needs to come three full turns loose before you can make any movements or adjustments so what that's going to do is number one you're always going to maintain the position of your bracket number two if it does come loose you're going to hear a little bit of that rattle from that screw and you're not going to lose your position so you're going to be able to adjust that and tighten it back down without having to start from zero again with adjusting your bracket yeah, a hundred percent, man. Well, and also just the way that it mounts to the bow, that lip that you put on it that sits against the riser makes a huge difference so that thing doesn't spin from the mounting bolt either, like the way it mounts in there. You've just thought of all the little things, you know, which um, makes it like the best one out there. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's kind of what we're thinking, you know, durability overall. You know, we hear stories about you going over the handlebars of your motorcycle. I was like, all right, we need to figure something out here. We need to make sure that this thing's going to stay put no matter what. Um, and, yeah, that's that's what we did. You know, so we, we did sacrifice a little bit of adjustment, but I've probably installed close to a 1,000 of these brackets now, and I've never seen a hunting setup that wasn't able to get to be perfectly balanced with the amount of adjustment that we have. So it's... It's been a process, like you said, like before we even released that bracket, that thing had 2,000 days in the field as far as testing, and that's you, that's me, that's the whole team over here at Cutter that uh, we were out there hunting hard. You know, these are all guys that hunt, you know, 40 days a year or more, which is probably more than most people will ever be able to do, but we wanted to make sure before we released this thing that it was absolutely ready to rock and roll and it could stand up to whatever hunt or whatever challenge that, that our customers were able to put it through. Yeah, yeah, 100%, man. Well, and, um, so when you're setting these these bars up, what's your process for figuring out your weight on these bars? What's your process to figure out your angle? Kind of how do you start from scratch to set these up to make sure you're getting uh, the largest amount of benefit that you can from your bars? I'd say step one is choosing your front bar length, and I would choose that based on the longest possible bar that you are comfortable using. So, like, if we're a tree stand or a ground blind hunter, 
we're probably not going to go with a 15 inch bar just because that's that's what we're we know we're going to always be hunting in physical space confined locations right so like our best selling combo is a 12 inch front and a 10 inch back um and the thing to consider is the longer the bar the less weight we have to run to accomplish the same thing so I kind of ask people the question of do we want a lighter overall setup or do we want a more compact overall setup? And that's going to kind of determine the lengths of the bars that we need, knowing that if the bars are shorter, we're going to need more weight. So we decide that front bar length, we decide the back bar length, and then we can move into our weights and our angles, right? So the first thing I'm trying to accomplish is getting that left-right balance, offsetting our accessories. So that's a matter of more so the angle than the amount of weight. The amount of weight is going to be be determined by what that bow does forward to backwards, which, like I said, in my hand at full draw, I want that pin to kind of creep upwards rather than to tip forwards from the top. Um, so that's where I'm adding my weight to, to the back bar to get that bow to sit level, if not a little bit more bottom heavy. But... Um, yeah, it's just a matter of that process of dialing it in from there and the angle vertically, meaning, you know, your state, your back stabilizer being more horizontal, that's going to act like a longer lever. As we drop it down, that weight is going to have less of an effect because we're shortening the lever length. So we also have that variable to really dial it in as far as the amount of weight that we need. So if we have, let's say we have a 12 inch front bar and an eight inch back bar. And we have three ounces on the front and six on the back, which is a pretty standard starting point. You know, that two to one ratio as far as weight. If that, if we start with that back bar pretty close to horizontal and it's too much, then we can lower that angle down. So we're essentially shortening that stabilizer and making that weight less effective. Um, if it's not enough, then we can keep it closer to horizontal. We can add weight. So all of our weights, um, our individual one ounce weights. So we can really dial that in. Uh, we also just released a one piece six ounce weight, which I got to get you some of those because, um, the six ounce individual weight stack is like one and three quarter inches or something like that. The six ounce one piece is one inch. So it's shorter, but it's a little bit larger diameter, but it still tapers down super nice to match up with the stabilizer and it's super aerodynamic. So we really put a lot of thought into this, this system as a whole, right? Um, and then, of course, our front quick disconnect is, <laughs> I think, it's a game changer. Just being able to store that front bar vertically when it's in your pack or on your, in your case, it's, it's pretty awesome. And, you know, it's it's not a pivoting system like the other ones are because you run a long bar and you have to pivot the stabilizer and you bump into your sight. So ours is an in and out system. So you completely take it off the bow, turn it vertically, put it onto that front quick disconnect and it's stored nice and tight right up next to the bow. Um, during antelope season, I'm prefacing this with during antelope season so we can shed a little bit of light onto this because I was using my front stabilizer as a handle to carry my bow in that vertical orientation. And as long as we're not jumping over logs and doing crazy extreme parkour hunting, then we can, we can use that feature like that. If we start to get a little bit crazy, I 
haven't fully tested it as far as jumping up and down things, but I didn't have any issues with carrying my bow like that. That's so funny, parkour hunting. I love that. Yeah, that's, you never <laughs> yeah, know, you, man. Yeah, you could maybe describe some of my bow hunting that way for sure. Yep. Uh, oh, no, yeah. that that is awesome. So basically that front stabilizer, you know, like mine sticks out 15 inches. And uh, what Earl's stating is that uh, it's got a quick disconnect where you just um, unscrew it a bit and then you stick it vertical and he's made the bracket to where then you can store that vertical. And yeah, it like, um, you know, I don't do that that on my pack so much is um i like to kind of anchor it down by the stabilizers just to attach it to my pack or whatever but i do use it when i'm traveling or in a vehicle with multiple bows or people back there because the 12 inch back and the 15 inch front makes for like a pretty long space so i do use it a bunch as i'm traveling and it's just so nice that you can lock it into place vertical uh, because then you're not risking like you know, losing the the bracket screw on it or something rattling loose or just everything's tight and in there. And it just takes two seconds to to make it go vertical on the bow and then it's not sticking out the 15 inches. So just like we were talking about earlier, like you, you've thought of uh, you thought of everything on these, like to to really make it as good as you can make it. And um, that's definitely one of the features that I really like. No, oh, yeah, for sure. No, the way that that vertical storage kind of came to be is antelope hunting you're driving around a bunch in the vehicle and when you're hunting by yourself i would leave my bow in the passenger seat kind of leaning up against the back of the seat and i took one of those rubber gear ties and just ran it around the headrest to keep the bow attached and i'd store my stabilizer vertically now that i have that previously i'd have to take my front bar off because you know it's jamming into the seat so you see your antelope, you drive and you park where they can't see you, you jump out, you grab your bow, flip that stabilizer into the horizontal position, and you're ready to rock and roll. You don't have to dig in the back of the truck to get your bow out. You know, sometimes you don't have a lot of time. you got to get out of the truck, and you got to you know run for cover to get into position to, to go chase antelope. And I wanted something that was you know quick and easy to deploy, and also it was, it was secure enough that you're not going to lose your front stabilizer. Yeah, it makes such sense. Um, yeah, uh, well, you, you talk about antelope hunting. Well, that's the logo for cutter stabilizers. So I know you love to chase antelope out. And yeah, like um, while we're antelope hunting uh, or talking about antelope hunting, it's the 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 vehicle is such a tool for covering country. These antelope live in such vast spaces, and so it sounds like you do it similar to the way that I do it, where you know you really use your vehicle to cover country to cover these miles, and then you know you're glassing different places way off, or or um, you know, and sometimes it's a short hike to a vantage point to be able to look over a bunch of terrain, but really using your vehicle because you're you're not hunting just to square mile you're hunting 100 square miles or 300 square miles to find these antelope and there's a lot of places where antelope aren't and so use this vehicle as a tool to be able to cover country and locate antelope and then from there you know you're making a stock or making a play on them which could be miles away or you know just to to get into country but yeah you do use your vehicle a bunch for antelope sounds like you do it in a in a similar style as i do it's such a tool when you use it correctly isn't it it's not like we're shooting oh, antelope yeah. from the vehicle or something like that but we're definitely doing a lot of glassing and getting a feel for where these antelope herds are before we get out to make a play 
Definitely. Yeah, I mean, antelope tend to have like a five-mile loop that they, they live within, you know, and just having to cover that five miles by foot, it just it doesn't make sense when you're you're chasing something that can run 60 miles an hour for until they get bored of running that fast, you know what I mean? But I remember there was a, I think it was two years ago, I was hunting on an antelope hunt, and in two and a half days of hunting, I drove 700 miles in my vehicle. So, like, there's no way you can do that by foot, you know, the... The backpack hunting for antelope is, is is not the way to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So they just they move too much. They're too nomadic. And sure, if you pattern them and you figure out where they're at within their daily schedule within that five mile loop, you might be able to get a little bit lucky. But for the rest of the twelve hours of daylight that they're not there, it makes more sense to drive around and look for them than just sit around and wait, you know. Oh, 100%. It's it's strange. I have different tendencies uh, with the antelope that I hunt. So some places I hunt, a vehicle doesn't bother them at all. It's pretty normal. They're always going down the gravel roads, and the antelope are really used to them, and um, so you can glass from your rig. And then I have other spots that are remote roads that I go where these antelope don't see many vehicles, and these remote places that I go... I have to be pretty strategic. I'm still using my vehicle to cover country, but I have to make sure that the antelope don't see the vehicle because they'll run like crazy even seeing a a rig, you know. So I'm I'm having to drive, and then I have like strategic spots I stop before I come up over a rise, and then I'll I'll park and I'll get out and I'll sneak over the rise and kind of glass down or glass down into these draws or into these canyons. So I have to be pretty strategic with my vehicle at how I'm using it, just because. I've been busted so many times, like in these re- some of these remote roads that I use. But do you find that as well? Like most antelope don't mind vehicles; they're used to them, right? Yeah, that's funny. That's exactly what I do. Is whenever I'm driving, if I come to a rise, I'll park the truck and I'll walk up with with my binos and glass, you know, ahead of me. Um, and that's it's part of my uh, my pre high country cardio is I'll jog back to the truck after I get done glassing. You know, is it Sometimes I'll walk up 200, 300 yards, and you have this little jog back to the truck. But, um, yeah, it's, it kind of depends on, on where you're at. You know, that, that hunt that I drove about 700 miles, if I stopped the truck at all, 1,500 yards away, these antelope were taking off. I'm just like, give me a break, guys. Come on. So, you know, they just get they get beat up by the rifle hunters, and I'm not going to go into that any farther. But, um you know, sometimes you can you can get away with driving around, but as, as soon as that vehicle stops, it seems like that's when they take off running. So it's if I'm if I see a herd of antelope and I'm driving, then I'll keep moving until I'm I can park out of view and then get out of the truck and go. But if you stop that vehicle, even just to look at them, chances are they're going to probably take off. Oh, that's another good point. Yeah, I forgot about that. The stopping the vehicle, they know you're looking at them or paying attention, and then they'll yeah. they'll blow from there. But antelope are so fun, man. It's like uh, one of my funnest hunts every year. I love the prairies. I love where they live. 
And then they just have such keen instincts that it makes us so much better at stalking, you know, and you get chances at them. And so, you know, being able to stalk these critters, like, um, man, it really sharpens my skills and has made me a better bow hunter. It seems like you just think about coming up over the grass to look at them and they've got you, got you busted or got you caught. Like they have such good eyesight and keen instincts in that prairie, uh, such good awareness of their surroundings. So it's one of the reasons I really like like to hunt antelope is they just make you so much better at stalking oh yeah yeah i mean you go from antelope season to deer and elk season you pretty much feel like you can walk right up to the deer and the elk when you have actual cover to hide behind rather than crawling through a parking lot you know what i mean but um yeah it's uh it's definitely it'll sharpen your skills for sure and you know the, personally i think the prairie kind of landscape that's that's my absolute favorite you know i'll take that over the over the mountains even and you know it takes takes some time to to get out there and see that it's more than just a flat barren wasteland you know you got to actually spend some time and get out there and then you start seeing all these cool little nuances of of that stuff you know there's these little coolies and rolling hills and all those big, uh, like white rock buttes and stuff like that. It's just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, I mean, you gotta imagine what the first people to come out here and see that, um, it had to be, had to be pretty awesome. And just the, the first light views of, you know, just being super quiet out there before the wind picks up and hearing the little birds and stuff. And I sound like a hippie now, but, uh, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. No, it is. Uh, it is. It's way awesome. Like I love the prairies as well. And uh, yeah, antelope teaches you like what you can get away with and what you can't, you know. And so you start to like build these instincts that you're right come into play for deer and elk, and you get really good at using any little ungulation. So just what you're talking about, you glass some antelope, and it looks fairly flat out there, but there's actually a lot of ungulation, a lot of character. You learn how to use rises. You learn how to use dips. And and you you learn what is a high percentage and a low percentage stock. It's like I, I've learned, too, that, you know, I can read the topography and the ungulation and there's always more than you think. But sometimes they're just out in the middle of a flat. Like, like you said, it looks like a parking lot or a golf course out there. There's like nothing to hide behind. And I've I've spent hours crawling up on antelope out in that stuff. And sure, I can maybe get into range. But the minute I try to come up and shoot or get to my knees like I'm busted, you know, they just don't put up with that movement so close. So you start to learn like, okay, like that antelope is not in a good location right now. I'm not going to waste my time stalking that thing in a wide open golf course because I just know I'm going to burn my evening hunt and I'm not going to get a shot at that thing. And so really waiting for him to get into the right position uh, or really uh, like trying to look for an antelope in the right location where you do have ungulation and topography. And sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you just got to get out there to see exactly what you're working with. But I think it does get you better at like your decision making of when to stalk and when not to stalk as well. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't help that they can see 310 degrees around them. You know, it's just, I, there was, um, I want to say it was two or three years ago, but we had a uh, like a super early snowstorm in September. It was like the first week of September. We got a bunch of snow, and I ended up shooting a deer and then driving out to 
to try to fill my antelope tag. So I was antelope hunting in the snow. It was one of the coolest things I've ever done. And um, it was the last day of, of the hunt that I was able to go on, and I see this buck out feeding and in the prairie, and there was some, some topography until I got up within that, like, 200-yard range. So I'm army crawling through the snow, and this buck is, is feeding along, and he beds down, and I think I got into, like, 160 yards, and he stood up and starts feeding away, and he just just was walking away, and it was just faster than I was able to army crawl, you know, so I was between 150 and 200 yards of this thing, and finally, it was, uh, he spotted me, you know, I was just camouflage blob in the middle of a white snowy field and not a very high percentage as far as that goes but it was just so cool to be able to see all of that that kind of terrain rather than being 100 degrees and hot it was 30 degrees and covered in snow it was just it was super different and really cool that is super cool. They give us a long season here in Montana, and so the the archery season goes from August fifteenth to um, it's like October. Oh, oh, it goes to November seventh or eighth. But then the right. rifle season does open like in October seventh or eighth, somewhere around in there. So you try to get it done before the rifle season opens, as they do get them chased off a lot of the public and. Um, uh, pretty skittish but yeah I've, I've killed quite a few late september early october goats and it is fun like um you know as it gets into september they rut about the same time frame as uh, elk do so a lot of yep. the seasons happen early which is a good opportunity to chase bucks on their own they're even bucks like starting to be with does or have their harem uh, but it's such a riot when you can hunt those things in september during the rut so i'm always pretty happy when i'm able to hold my tag through until September, you know, it cools down a bit, and then the rutting action is just crazy, and I really think, like, antelope, you know, they make you better at stalking, but they really hone your instincts, your decision-making ability, because you're having to make so many decisions on the fly, uh, going left or right, or which ungulation you're going to use, and then they will win you, too. I mean, some people say that antelope's noses aren't that good, and Maybe they're not as good as deer or elk, but, man, I just know you get the wind wrong on those things. They wind you every single time, you know. So, oh, yeah. like, man, you just really got to be on your game. To arrow an antelope, spot and stalk in the field, like, man, you got to have a good skill set on you, you know. And that skill set carries through to everything else you hunt. And so, you know, not only is it one of my funnest hunts of the year because I get so many opportunity and chances to make plays, but it really hones my instincts. And then it's just such a great warm up as it, as it gets me used to being in bow range and that excitement and thrill. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, uh just such a great preseason or so, so great, like before deer and elk. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I kill deer and elk is just because of my antelope experience prior to that, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's the biggest difference is the repetitions you get on stocks, right? You know, deer and elk, you're spending a week to go on maybe one or two stocks. Where antelope, you go on, you know, a couple stocks every single day. And you're seeing animals all day long, and like you said, some you, you can't go after, some you can, and it's just the the repetitions of figuring out which ones are good and which stocks worked, which stocks didn't. You know, they'll let you get into 250 yards most times, but it doesn't really do us any good with a bow. Oh, 100%, man. Yeah, did you get an antelope tag this year? I did. I ended up drawing a pretty decent tag with one of my good buddies, so 
actually two good buddies. So we're going to have three of us out there and it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, the units that has the most public ground here in, in Eastern Colorado. So it should be, should be a good time. I've hunted it once before and had a pretty good hunt. I think I hunted, uh, like 16 days out there the last time I hunted it and, um, got into antelope a bunch and had a couple duck my string, which is unfortunate. And I even flat out missed one. I'm not even going to lie. I flat out <laughs> missed one. It was first, very first light. I'd been awake for maybe all of 10 minutes and, uh, I just didn't, didn't pick a spot. Just came to full draw and let it rip. And that's not how you shoot at uh really long, far away, small animals. I'll tell you that. Yeah, there's such a high degree of difficulty, and they will get inside your head, too, because, uh, yeah, you can have them jump your string, and one in three, or, you know, who knows how many. I've had the same antelope buck jump my string, uh, like, two or three times where I had to stop shooting at it, because I just, like, uh, every time I'd shoot, he'd be five yards away by the time my arrow would get there. But, yeah, they, one in three, like, they're really jumpy, and they will jump a string 100%. And then the minute that they don't jump the string, you, like, miss the shot, and it was like, God, he waited for the arrow and then i i flat out missed him but they are a small critter and you have to be pretty dialed on your shooting as well as they do come at longer distances in that open country and open prairie um so yeah they they make you better at executing good shots as well um just so fun you guys are going to have a ride out there this year and it's a great group hunt too where you can get a buddy or a couple buddies and go on these antelope hunts um yeah i'd really we got some great spots here in montana i always end up kind of hunting them local or within an hour of my house just because uh the convenience of it where i can hunt evening or i can hunt a free day and i usually have so many hunts lined up that time of year but Man, we got some awesome spots in Montana. I keep saying I'm going to plan a trip, you know, like out to the eastern part of the state or the central part of the state, which I've been out to hunt antelope before, but usually it's in combination with something else. But, um, yeah, it's uh, we have some great antelope and some great places to chase them. Yeah, it's just a matter of, of making the time to go on, like, some of these super trips. But, yeah, and, and you've got into – um hunting muleys quite a bit lately like you hunt everything with your bow that they'll let you muleys antelope elk but recently you've got into a lot of that high country stuff and been chasing just some world-class bucks up there in the high country uh that extreme terrain's pretty fun too isn't it oh yeah yeah and i uh i got that same tag that i had last year and um we got on a big buck last year it was it was a very very big buck you know once in a lifetime kind of deer and um yeah, so I got that same tag. As far as I know, that deer should still be alive. Um, he was uh, he was over 200 last year, so I can hardly imagine what he's going to be this year if he's if we can locate him. But yeah, that uh, that high country stuff is it's it's pretty eye opening. You know, they'll show you show you how out of shape you are, and you know that's. Uh, I think that deer last year he was living at like 13.2, so we get really high up here in in Colorado, and you know of course the deer we spot him he's literally the highest point on the mountain that the deer could possibly be, and I mean for a deer like that you, you're not gonna not go up there after him you know so it's just one foot in front of the other to get up there and so I was you know, 75 yards away from this giant deer for over two hours. And just, it's crazy how those big bucks just have those, those instincts to stay alive. You know, he was with a smaller deer 
and I had um, I had cut in to where they were bedded in the willows, and as soon as I cut in, um, the small deer had spotted me or spotted something that he didn't like and took off, and the big deer literally stood there in the willows still for two and a half hours, didn't bed down, didn't walk around, literally stood in one spot for two and a half hours. And all I could see was the tips of his antlers. The willows were so tall. And I got my buddies 800 yards away watching through the spotter, and they could see the entire deer. I looked at the footage later, and it about killed me to know that they could see the whole deer, and all I could see was his antlers. But watching the footage back, they're yelling through the camera, why isn't he shooting? Shoot the deer! Shoot the deer! Like, I can't see the freaking deer, guys. So I was... um finally gave, got me into an opportunity where I, I could tell which direction he was facing. I saw a flash of his butt through the through the willows and kind of pictured out where, where his vitals should be. And um, I would have had to, I had to arc my arrow, you know, up over the willows and then it would have gone into the deer if it was a perfect shot. Otherwise it would have, you know, hit the willows or went over the deer. So this is like, um, I want to say it was like 6.30 in the evening. So the mountain was already in the shade. I'm wearing a, a super-duper lightweight hoodie. I'm just starting to shake, you know, starting to shiver. I've been there for, for too long, just standing still, not moving. So at this point, I'm freezing cold, get my shot at the deer, and end up hitting the willows short. And um, it, it was tough watching such a giant deer bounce away. But... Uh, you know, it's, I would have rather missed clean than, than hit him poorly. So that's kind of why I elected to, to take that shot that that I had, as it was either an all-or-nothing type of shot. And um, <clears throat> he didn't blow out of the basin. I ended up going in there the, the following weekend and getting on him again. And um, they had dropped down into the timber at that point. And it's, it's tough to, to try to get on him in the timber. You know, we were... We were creeping around this this 300 yard by 300 yard patch of trees, and just they must have just slipped out, or we walked right by them, one of the two. But they were they were not there. Um, so yeah, last season was was kind of my first real high country mule deer experience. You know, it's it was a pretty cool first high country experience to be on a world class deer like that, and to to just watch them, you know, how they, how they interact with, with their environment. And, you know, we were watching them from like a mile and a half away through the spotter and these two elk hunters had walked like a hundred yards below them and they just bed down in the willows and wait for the hunters to pass through. And then they get back up and start doing their thing again. And it's just, it's crazy how those big deer just know how to stay alive. Oh, they so do. They're, um, yeah, they're the ultimate challenge. They do have such keen instincts, and uh, they get so good at surviving in that in that habitat or interacting with that habitat. And, uh, yeah, it's like the extreme nature of it. It takes so much effort to get up to where they are. And a lot of places, you know, you, you have to, to backpack and carry everything you need, like, deep into the mountains just to, just to get a chance to maybe see one, you know, and then um, – yeah, I always think it's special when you get to um, chase like a world-class deer, elk, or whatever it is. Just the the opportunity to match wits with one like that that you that you want so bad. But yeah, they 
Uh, they're pretty crafty, man. They are tough to arrow for sure, especially uh, in those willows as well. They really use that cover uh, wisely as they uh, use it to conceal themselves and they can just lay down and disappear. You know, you really need them to walk out from that stuff or give you a lane and that stuff. But good on you, man. Well, I hope that buck made it and you get another crack at them this year. They tend to live in the same places year to year as they learn a, a home range or a home area that they really like. And then they definitely have like secondary living after that where they can disappear down too. And it sounds like your buck kind of dropped down into the trees and into more cover where he's tougher to find. But um, yeah, man, they're, they're really special. And especially in that, in that type of country that's so extreme that, um, you know, it's tough for humans to survive up there. And it does, it's like, man, it just takes grit to, to be able to get up to where they are in that, that high elevation up and through there. And then sometimes they're not even approachable just with the steep terrain and cliffs and the way they use that, uh, for cover where they bed down and things, you know, but, um, man, that's super fun. I know I got some high country hunts coming up that I'm super excited about to, um, go match wits with these things again. And hopefully I can turn up something like that one that you turned up or, uh, even a little bit under that, I'd be happy with them. You know, it's like, uh, that yeah. he was, it was definitely a giant deer. I remember you sending me some pictures of that thing. Um, but yeah, man, how special and in that country, uh, that's pretty fun. So yeah, I bet you're, um, really excited to get back in there this year and see, have you scouted for him at all this summer? Uh, put eyes I haven't on it. scout yet, no, but, um, just going off of the, the kind of Intel that we have on that deer, um, 90% sure that in the wintertime he drops down into uh, a little town and he's a, he's a town deer in the wintertime. So hopefully he survived the, the rifle season by being down in, in the little town that's near the high country. Um, but I've been trying to get out there. It's just, it's been, been crazy and, you know, such is life, right? We get work tends to get in the way of all of our fun stuff, but, uh, we gotta, we gotta do, do it all. So I got, it's going to be a busy season. So I've got the, the antelope tag. I've got the deer tag. I'll do uh, over the counter elk here with my dad. And then we're going to start our whitetail stuff, which is, uh, it's my new passion. This is the whitetail stuff, man. It's, it's a whole nother thing. Don't get into that. If you value your spare time, I'll tell you that. Yeah, you've got hooked on the on the whitetail thing here lately. You're hunting oh, them in eastern terrible. Colorado. You're hunting them a couple different states, right? Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll start in October. We're gonna go down to Texas. Uh, November will be Nebraska, and then December will be Arkansas. So um, we got three three whitetail hunts. I think between those three states. Um, gosh, if I fill all my tags, that would be like twelve whitetails. So. Um, that's the thing about those Midwest states is like Texas, it's like 310 bucks to shoot seven deer. So there's a lot of, a lot of opportunities, but you know, Texas is unique because it's all private land, right? So you're basically paying for the access to the, the tag is like a formality. You know, you have to figure out the access, which the way we do it is a little bit different. It's not very glamorous, but it's, you know, buddies that have properties out there that you know, you can hunt this, you know, this property for two sits here and you can shoot this deer, but you can't shoot that deer. You know, we're driving, you know, three to four hours from, from where we're staying to get to the property or, you know, eating fast food and sleeping on, on couches. And it's about as close to DIY in Texas as you can get. But, um, 
Yeah, it's definitely not staying at a nice hunting lodge and sitting in a nice predetermined tree stand. You know, a lot of the stuff there, they do that and for other paying clients. So we get the, the leftovers, you know, which is still, it's still a fun experience to get out there. And, you know, hunting a feeder is kind of interesting because, you know, it's, it's kind of got that stigma behind it that it's cheating, but there is literally no better way to watch a deer be a deer than be sitting 15 yards away and watching them and feed and interact with other deer and just sit there, you know, 15 yards away from you know, with, without knowing you're there. It's, it's pretty freaking cool. I mean, at the end of the day, you still got to play the wind. You still got to stay still and you still got to make a good shot. You know, it's really no different than, than hunting a trail or hunting a scrape or hunting a wallow. You know, it's, it's the same thing at the end of the day. It's just, you have the luxury of knowing what time the animals are likely to be there by the time that the feeder goes off, you know, so it's, it's a cool experience. And, um, I remember we had a, a stand in one of those properties that, um, we're in a ground blind and there was 16 deer 20 yards away from us for over an hour. Just like what other opportunity are you ever going to have to see that many deer that close? Yeah. hundred percent, man. It, um, yeah, those whitetails, uh, they're so crafty. They get so good at living in um, small spaces undetected, and they are a super switched-on species. And the same as antelope has sharpened my skills. You know, it's like uh, here in Montana, they'll give us, you know, five doe tags over the counter. And and, and so you get a, a good chance to hunt them like in these river bottoms in different places. And really, we have an opportunity to spot and stalk whitetails here in Montana. So I've definitely sharpened my skills chasing those whitetails. It's, they're so switched on and such a cool species. There's uh, the bucks, their racks, and um, uh, the, the way they rut and rut those does. Uh, you can see why it's like the most popular thing to hunt across the nation as that's what a lot of people have to hunt but um they are a really fun species to get into and um i always say that i'm i'm i always get distracted by muleys here in montana our buck tag is a muley or a whitetail there's been a couple of years where it's like man i'd i'd shoot a good whitetail in fact i had a good whitetail in range last year it was just um he didn't give me a good angle. It was kind of quartering towards, and I, I did have a shot at him. I drew back, uh, but passed on the shot and ended up letting down. I just knew I had my muley tag, and then, um, you know, but he was a pretty long time big eye guard. And for me, he doesn't need to score super big. I just want a big mature one. We have a lot of like smaller three on tops, and those ones don't really get me excited. But like a heavier, older deer, even if he is a three on top, but just gets that mass and that age under him, I definitely shoot that one. So one of these years, like I've been out to Ohio to hunt him out of tree stands like those guys do out there. And then, um, yeah, I've hunted him around Montana a bit and killed a, a bunch of does over the years. And, um, filled my freezer with good doe meat, but um, yeah, that that big whitetail buck has still eluded me. And one of these years, I'm gonna have to put something together where I can go chase one of those big ones and um, see if I can put an arrow in them. But uh, I definitely like the species and like the hunt. And that's funny the way you're talking about traveling and hunting for them. And a lot of times, um, you know, being a 
a do-it-yourself bow hunter, you have to be good at like kind of living like a dirt bag, you know, whether it's like living on a couch or like for me and, and my buddies, we never get hotel rooms, you know, we're always sleeping in the dirt or sleeping in the back of the truck, but so much of, so much of the experience too is like the travel of trying to get there and where you end up and um, yeah, you have to get pretty good at uh, uh, living with less or, you know, at least for us guys, we don't always have a lodge or a hotel or something to hunt out of, so a lot of times it's just sleeping in the dirt but yeah that sounds like a good time rel with um you and your buddies and and to go uh get some some uh white tails down there and chase some bucks around man sounds like a riot yeah it's it's really cool i think um i think the thing that would get you hooked on the white tail is having access to a property that you can manage and learn and pattern the deer and that's what we have in Nebraska. You know, we have we have access to three different properties, and one of them being uh, my business partner Brandon's father-in-law's farm. Um, just to be able to you know see the property grow and change over the years, and put out your cameras and decide where the stands are going to go, and figure out where where the deer are using and living. And it, it really becomes you know I say elk hunting is checkers and whitetail hunting is chess because it's it's so strategic and you have to it's so different because once you're in that tree stand that's that's it you sit there and you let go you know there's no there's no moving there's no changing your your mind because your spot might not be great you know all of your all of your preseason work comes into play and then you sit your butt in that tree stand and you hope you made the right decision you know so that's it's really different in that regard that once you're there, then the work is kind of done and you just get to enjoy the hunt, you know, rather than deciding if you're even in the right basin or in the right area or on the right slope of the mountain here, all of your effort is done pre-season. And once you're, once you're sitting there in that, in that stand, then you have one, one objective and that's to sit still, stay awake and, you know, shoot the deer when it comes in. Oh, man. Yeah, I definitely have got a taste of that for sure. And I think you're right. I think if I just had a good place to hunt that I could hone in on and really play that chess game, like I think I would get pretty hooked on it. And um, you're right. It's like takes a different kind of grit or a different kind of toughness. It isn't the miles that you're putting on or like the exertion that you're putting out. But it's so tough to be patient, and it's so tough to sit still. And in those tree stands, too, I've never been so cold as sitting in one of those things. I'm used to Western hunting where I can layer up and layer down, and I can move to keep warm. But, boy, when you're sitting still, I'd have on everything I own, and I'd still get cold up there. But just um, the, the grit and determination it takes to sit in that stand for all-day sits – like, man, it messes with my head all day sits day in, day out. Like, man, it gets to me. Like, it takes, like, it takes the grit of continually putting yourself out there and continually spending the time chasing these bucks. And to go out there and make an all-day sit in, like, a travel corridor and not see a deer drives me nuts, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it just takes, like, all of these hunts – uh, different species in different habitats sharpens our skill sets in different ways. And whitetails definitely sharpen your skill set as it is a chess game, choosing where you're going to sit and, um, uh, you know, and having to be okay with your decision and not second guess it. Like you say, you can't move. Once you're there, you're there. And so it's such a like this 
instincts of making the decision of where you're going to sit and then like the the discipline to be able to sit there all day and keep focused and ready for your opportunity is really difficult so yeah nothing but respect hunting those things yeah it's it's a different game for sure and you you definitely need different gear to sit in a tree stand you know first time i i hunted whitetail of a tree stand i wore what i would wear for like a late season western hunt i froze my ass off you know before the sun even came up i was in the tree stand and i was shivering by the time the sun came up you know so it's it's a different game you definitely need to wear different different gear to to stay warm but you know it's there's a big mental piece to to sitting in a stand for for all day you know day in and day out you're in there first light to last light and you know you go home eat go to bed wake up five hours later and do it again you know it's it can get to be really tiring you know it's it's a big challenge to to stay motivated like that you know it's super easy to just say well i'll just sleep in and then hunt the hunt the evening but you know Midwest whitetail is it's so crazy because you never know like there could be a 180 inch deer that comes in any single day and, you know those deer cover so much country during the rut that it's that suspense of not knowing what you're gonna get that's that's so fun. Hundred percent, man. Yeah, I got to put more effort into those whitetails and line up one of those hunts. I have a couple ends and. Um, yeah, I just need to pull the trigger on it. It's like I keep so busy hunting elk and mule deer, which I absolutely love. But um, those whitetails are a specific challenge as well, so I definitely need to put more effort into that. But, um, well, man, it's always good um, getting you on the line. Uh, cutter stabilizers again, just building the best stabilizers out there. Uh, where can guys find your stabilizers? Where can guys keep up with um, you during the season and see how you're doing? What are the best places to find you at, Earl? So the website is cutterstabilizers.com. Um, we're on Instagram. It's Cutter Stabilizers Official. Um, the YouTube channel will get some really, really good content this year. Uh, I went a little bit hard in the paint this year. I ended up buying a drone. I ended up getting getting a new camera. So we're going to try really hard to get some good, vintage, good uh, video footage for the YouTube channel. Um, and then if you want to follow my personal page, I got to do better about posting on there, but it's, um, Earlimus Maximus. Um, I should be posting a fair bit of stuff on there as we get into hunting season. But, um, also if, if anyone has like a good bow shop that they want to see our stabilizers in, we're really pushing hard to get into more pro shops. So, um, if you guys have a good bow shop, tell them to, to get in touch with us and um we'll try to get get into the shops so that's that's one of our big goals for this year going into next year is to really get into a bunch more pro shops and, and kind of bring these things to be more readily available locally to to guys that are um you have your good shops that you like we want to get in there and we want to we want to be able to get you to put hands on these things and really see just how light and how small diameter they are because it's it's one thing to see them online, but to be able to put them put them in your hand and see them in person, it's it's a whole nother thing. So um, they can reach us at um, at my email. It's info at cutterstabilizers.com, and uh, just yeah, tell your pro shops to to get in touch with us. We'd like to get these things spread out a little bit more across the country. Yeah, hundred percent, man. That's something we didn't even talk about—the small diameter that catches less wind, you know, because they they are so much smaller than other stabilizers out there. But yeah, man, um, 
gosh dang, uh, be cheering you on this season and um, definitely cheering you on as a company because I love the the cutter stabilizers, your brackets, your weights. So go, guys, go check these things out, man. They make you a better archer, better shooter. They're a huge benefit to Western hunters, to whitetail hunters, everybody out there. So um, can't thank you enough, real. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Yeah, fun conversation with Earl. Uh, always interesting to get on the podcast, and I I love his archery knowledge. So I love picking his brain about different things like that sight question I had and um, stabilizers and setting them up. So just good stuff there. Uh, I want to thank our, our sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Sig Sauer, Silencer Central, and, of course, Cutter Stabilizers. I want to thank Black Ovis and Camo Fire and uh, Eastman's for all their support. So um, make sure to go check out Dan, Picard, and I's other podcasts, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. Really enjoying doing that. Uh, just have such a good chemistry with Dan, and um, seems like we, we get, it's like the podcasts are just full of good tips and tactics for uh, that'll help you guys for this coming season. So make sure to go check that out. It's on a different feed, and um, yeah, thanks for the support, you guys. It it really helps out when you can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, also, sharing it on social media really helps. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your guys' support and uh, cheering for your guys' success this season. With that, uh, I'm going to finish packing here and um, get on a plane and head up and go chase some mountain goats. And then we'll be hunting high country mule deer and then elk from there. So, should be a really good season and... Um, couldn't be more fired up so um let's go get after it kill some bucks and bulls and um man with that uh be a podcast waiting for you guys next week